0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's bring in George Borey, shall we, Wells Fargo Securities Head of Fixed Income Research. George, great to see you. Yeah, good morning. Trying to work out what's going on here in global markets. Trade risk diminishing relative to, say, three months ago. Global growth bottoming out. To what degree is the latter exclusive from the former? Yeah. I'm trying to get my head around that. Many other people are as well. Yeah. Now, I
2: think what we're seeing, at least in the fixed income markets, it's it's a little bit closer to sort of what you'd consider more of a, a, a normal market in the sense that we've seen a pretty material adjustment across the yield curve. Yield curve was, uh, was, 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 was inverted earlier this year. Uh, we've seen that steepen out as uh, 10-year yields and, and longer-dated yields have moved up while the Fed has cut rates. And uh, a positively sloped, upward-sloping yeah. yield curve is a very good indicator, uh, certainly for future economic growth. It takes the sting, if you will, out of things like tail risks. Uh, there are still some concerns, obviously, about trade, but trade seems to be right. moving in the right direction and the data is getting a little bit better. The data
0: is really better for those brave enough to go into long duration long ago and far away. They're up solid double digits, if not more. What do you do now or into year-end planning if you've got that big double-digit gain in a 10, 20, or even longer bet, yep. whether it's munis or others, what do you do?
2: I think you move away away from what we would call a sort of a duration bet, so long long maturity bonds, and then you focus more on bonds or co- or companies that are more cyclically exposed. That if you're if you're willing to bet that there's an economic soft landing, which we think is underway, then parts of the bond market like High yield should do okay. These are companies with a little bit more leverage, uh, but with higher yielding uh, securities, higher yielding opportunities, a blended portfolio is gonna have a yield of roughly about 5.65, 5.75% with not a lot of duration.
3: There's been a shift in sentiment uh, over the past couple of weeks from inflation will never pick up again to uh, we're seeing the beginnings of reflation and inflation is underpriced in the market. Do you agree with that sentiment shift?
2: I think as we kind of move, I think people are looking forward to the beginning of next year. The data is getting a little bit better. The economic data is better. And there is a little bit of an upward lift on the inflationary front. Uh, But in addition to that, the technicalities of how inflation is calculated is likely to deliver a lift early next year. As the, uh, the linked effects of last year start to roll off the numbers, this is all very technical, not wildly exciting, but it will yeah. show optically that the headline inflation numbers are going to start to rise as we get into the beginning of next year. And you're starting to see that getting priced in now in some of the securities.
0: What do I do if I'm a saver? I got a pot of money. Yep. It's not a lot of money, but I got a pot of money and I just don't want to to be in equities, right. so you buy Dominion. You know, you buy a couple of utilities from the old days, Florida Power and Light, and then you buy coupon. What do you buy right now?
2: So, I, I, you know, I think what you I think you have to calibrate your return expectations, a fixed income. Portfolio. That's all. That, that's
0: Wells Fargo talk, John, for lower yield. <laughs> lower
2: yields. I think How much? Expecting more than a full like a three percent full yield is is optimistic uh, oh, and it's man. challenging if you're a saver anywhere in the world anywhere in the world, it is very difficult to generate significant coupon income. So if you're, you know, a mom and pop saver out there, an investment grade relatively low risk portfolio is in the sort of 3% kind of range. If you want to take a little bit more risk and you go into high yield, you know, now we're talking five and three quarters percent type of yields. Beyond that, you're now going into the depths of emerging markets. You're going overseas. You're going into corners of the market where you're going to pick up a significant amount of risk. So I think a three percent kind of yield, maybe a little bit higher, depending on how you blend your portfolio, it's about the best you can hope for. And I think you have to be realistic about your fixed income portfolio. It's an anchor. It, 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 it's an anchor to your overall portfolio, but it's but but the but the yield on it is going to be going be relatively low.
1: Three percent is the best that you can hope for in the world of fixed income. That's gonna be tough going out into 2020 for many of you out there I know. George, just a final question on the regional bias. You mentioned emerging markets. Many people thinking about that high beta trade to the trade story. I wanna buy the foreign assets, Europe even though fixed income has ratted really hard over yeah. the last couple of years. I'm thinking more about emerging markets. What's your advice to those people? So on the emerging markets front, I think you have to tread cautiously, especially as it
2: relates to fixed income. You've mentioned a few earlier, and I think you're gonna talk about it later in the show. You know, there are a variety of meaningful geopolitical issues uh, around the world, which maybe makes emerging markets look optically cheap, but they're cheap for a reason. You have a lot of political unrest in different parts of the market. The thing we would look for is, um, you know, if, if the dollar is, is getting stronger uh, that sometimes kind of can weigh a little bit on, on EM we'd sort of take an up in quality type of trade for for EM that's going to have a yield sort of roughly equivalent to high yield so you can use it as a diversification but not a real sort of material yield pickup so we would use EM as a more selective uh, selective type of, of, of allocation for a fixed income portfolio.
1: George Bory, thank you big week ahead for you we appreciate your time this morning. Thank George you. Borey there, Wells Fargo Securities Head of Fixed Income Research.
0: right now in Hong Kong, providing great leadership to Bloomberg Television and to Bloomberg News, Yvonne Mann joins us as well. Yvonne, this weekend was different. Quickly here, describe why this weekend was so different for the chief executive, Carrie Lam.
4: Well, Tom, this the, the protests right now have reached another level here. After the death of a student last week, uh, this man uh, was a 22-year-old student, a university student who fell off a car park near uh, during a demonstration where police used tear gas to disperse a crowd. And that is what sparked the violence over the weekend and what has uh, really transpired yeah. here this evening. Riot police right now are still in the streets, uh, territory-wide, uh, trying to stop these protesters, but we haven't seen any kind of right. end in sight at this point. And, and more violence here this morning, those two incidents of, of a man that was... Uh, set on fire by a protester after there were some verbal clashes, and of course that police officer that shot a protester at point blank this morning. Yvonne, on the ground there,
3: is the sh- is the mood different? Have can you actually feel the shift?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, we have felt the shift, and th- there was a while the last couple of weeks where things were simmering down a little bit, and now we've reached another type of fever pitch, I would say, because the, the, the death of the student is what really sparked more people on the streets over the weekend. We had already 90 arrests uh, on Saturday and Sunday, dozens injured already today. School was canceled for some universities and some uh, secondary schools, and 170 flights were canceled. So we're, we're kind of back into this more violent type of wave. That we've seen, uh, and the crowds have really—it hasn't just been one area. Now it's, it's the central business district where we yeah. saw traffic was disrupted. Uh, police were firing tear gas uh, near central landmark, one of the close to the, the the business district here, where many people are going to work. They had to hide and take cover in some of the luxury malls here as they were tear gas and washing washing their eyes with water. And that was something that we hadn't seen in some time. Yeah. And and so you feel it. uh, And you certainly feel it, especially with the closures around the retail malls, the banks, and of course, the vandalism that we've seen all across the city. How
3: explosive was uh, President Xi Jinping's explanation that he would like to see a patriot ruling Hong Kong regardless, so people better get used to uh, CEO Lam?
4: Right. I mean, that was another China just digging their heels saying that they're not going to give in to any of these demands Uh, but the police uh, hong kong police spokesman today during a press conference did say that they that he believes that there is no chance at this point that the pla will be deployed in the city so they're still sticking by police uh, hong kong police at the moment and defending their actions uh, especially with this morning with that shooting Uh, but it is once again uh, Carrie lamb talking today saying that these actions from the rioters as she called them go far beyond just demands right now. Now they're treating citizens, as she says, as enemies. So, uh, you know, she's still calling for a stop um, to the violence, but we haven't seen any of that yet.
0: Eva Man, thank you so much in the Monday evening of Hong Kong.
1: With us here in the studio, I'm pleased to say, is Sarah Malik, Nuving Global Equity CIO. Good morning to you, Sarah. Good morning. Within the equity market, at all-time highs, there is this rotation that many people are focused on, to cyclicals from defensives, to value from growth. Your thoughts on what is underpinning that move and where it's heading in the months to come.
5: So a couple of things on value, which we think can lead for the next couple of quarters. So first of all, this rally in value, the cyclicals that we've seen, has been about the strongest that's happened since late 2016, which is when the election occurred. And also it's been less fits and starts and more sustainable. So we do think it has legs. Basically what we've seen is the economy is less bad than we thought. Earnings came in better than expected. We're seeing some progress on tariffs, but definitely that's in kind of fits and starts itself. All of that should lead to value continuing to be the leader in the market for a quarter or two. But after that, earnings growth, low to mid single digits next year, we probably will go back to this quality growth kind of environment.
1: Less bad sound like the conditions to generate a squeeze not a sustainable rally not a sustainable rotation is that essentially what you're communicating to clients
5: yeah i'm seeing more of a reversion to the mean value's been undervalued for a while and we think it'll go back to the mean but then after that not trade at a premium because what you need in place for value to really work is strong earnings growth and a stronger economy which We're not going to see that going forward.
3: Earlier earlier this morning, Tom Keane made a really good point that five stocks account for 17% of the S&P 500. Those stocks are tech. What will drive tech further up at this point?
5: I think that's going to be challenging. The old world of where investors, you know, what we saw this narrow market for most of this cycle of the past decade was investors were willing to pay pretty high premiums for these high structural growth companies. We think it's going to be more of a GARP environment, growth at a reasonable price. People won't pay these premiums for these tech companies. So does that
3: mean uh, that another sector will get leadership here or that we'll just sort of uh, not see very much uh, by way of gains here?
5: We think that other sectors will get leadership, like quality growth with more defensive characteristics that are less dependent on the economy, but people are going to be careful about how much they pay for that growth. So you could see pockets of healthcare where pipelines are strong, uh, payments companies with a good tailwind on global payments, areas such as that.
0: The, the acclaim of Novene over decades is you knew what you owned. That was the whole Nuveen racket way back. Instead of buying a mutual fund, you bought a fixed portfolio of bonds. And it was a great and beautiful thing, particularly when price down yield up. Now you're in the equity area of it, but I'm fascinated how Nuveen is structured to protect people when we finally normalize. There's a belief out there Somewhere in the future, we'll get somewhat higher rates. Somewhere in the future, we may actually get a correction. Heaven forbid, a bear market. How does Naveen protect against that like you did a zillion years ago?
5: Well, we think of Naveen today, it's a lot different than it used to be. It's a trillion-dollar asset manager, multi-asset class firm, offerings across publics and private, so we can provide any kind of solution for investors. The equity business is a $300 billion asset center management business, deep specialists, we've been doing it for 65 years in right. domestic equities. So, you know, very deep yeah. history in investing that we think that's And that you're part of
0: TIA-CREF. I mean, you were there before, but now you're part of TIA-CREF, right?
5: That's right. TIA acquired Naveen.
0: Yeah, they acquired Naveen. Okay, what's your actuarial assumption? I mean, you know, we're just the four of us. Nobody's listening. Uh, but, what you know, what's your actuarial assumption you're working with right now with all the heritage of Naveen's bond view?
5: I mean, you know, I'm on the equity side. so I know,
0: but I still got to have an actual assumption. What is it?
5: I mean, I don't personally have one. I don't think that's my area of expertise and what we're thinking about right now with the equity business. What we're thinking about is how do we position our client portfolios around the world so that we can offer them diversification, make sure that, you know, we're able to um, diversify, not have large factor bets so that we can uh, own quality companies, um, you know, around the world and make sure that our client portfolios are diversified within equities.
1: Sarah, let's talk about that regional diversification at the moment. Many people are thinking about going abroad from outside the United States into places like Europe, into emerging markets. What's your advice for them at the moment?
5: So with this value rebound that we're seeing, we actually think it's positive for Europe, which has been a huge laggard over the past decade. So Europe tends to be more cyclical. We actually think that Germany may be starting to stabilize this Brexit may make some progress. So Europe in general, we're a little bit more positive on. Emerging markets, we like those a lot, particularly Brazil, which is a little bit out of the trade, crosshairs, nice reform story in place. And China, if tariffs can continue to make progress, we think that China should continue to rebound from here. Let's
1: start with Europe. If I go in at the index level and end up owning a load of financials, do I want them? Don't I want them?
5: I mean, we kind of generally like financials from here. We think that they can continue to do well as the ten-year creeps up. Um, European financials, we think, could look re- reasonably attractive if Europe does start to stabilize. So, European financials, European industrials could be uh, a nice sector. To, it's nice sectors to own going forward.
3: I'm trying to understand how you price geopolitical risk, and I'm thinking of Hong Kong, uh, the Hang Seng Index losing almost three percent on the heels of the violence that we saw overnight uh, in the region. How do you view that in terms of specific momentary risk versus larger systemic issues? I mean,
5: geopolitical risk has been an issue around the world for a long time, ranging from Brexit to the protests in Hong Kong. Typically, what we've seen is it remains somewhat localized and has not become a global problem like it has in the past. So for us, it's been making sure that you avoid that local area while these very hard to predict events are taking place. So
3: not buying the dip?
5: Not buying the dip right now.
0: I wanna give you a massive shout out. Maybe it's because you're in Chicago with Morningstar leaning over your shoulder, but the way on your website you display your fund's track record is an act of God. I just wish everybody did this, where you just say, look, this is year to date, that's what people wanna know. And it's great that the Nuveen ESG Large Cap Value Fund You know, it's 300 beeps under SPX, but it's not bad at all, 20% up this year. We'll take it. How do you respond to so many people in funds through well-intentioned reasons that are enjoying single-digit returns this year? They're looking at the crosshairs of the year-end, and they're going, wait a minute, what am I doing?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the job of the active manager is to lead by performance. So, you know, two goals here. One is you want to make sure that you can beat your benchmark and also that you can outperform relative to your peers so that you can justify the fees that you're charging. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you have funds that are struggling, you need to be looking closely at them and figuring out, you know, what we need to do better. Because if you're going to be an active manager with the uh, infiltration of passive, you need to make sure that you can beat your benchmark and uh, deserve the fee that you're, you're charging.
1: Sarah, thank you. It's great to see you this morning. We're going to have to get you back. I know you've got to run out of the studio for another appointment. Somewhere called Bloomberg TV, I think Sarah Malik has to go to. Thanks. She's got to run really? out of one studio to another. Okay. So she has to leave a little bit early. Sarah, thank you.
0: John, let's get right to it with our guest because this is like a road show. You got your rubber chicken, and you're all set up here right now for your road show for the Saudi Arabian oil
1: company. Are they doing it at the? You're doing
0: it at the Ritz with Stephen Short, who's going to stand up and tell them what oil's going to be from the Short Report with the most insanely. Hyper detailed view of American hydrocarbons, Stephen Shork, and we're thrilled he's on. It's been way too long, Stephen. Um, good morning. Can you tell Aramco that they need to settle on $50 oil or $60 oil? Which way is that going to cut?
6: Uh, I think at this point, Tom, with what we're seeing in the market with regard to economic growth, demand decay going out into the future, that lower for longer uh, would certainly be the mantra. I think even at that $60 range, I think that is uh, clearly – excuse me, a a, a realistic range. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it right. is well below what Aramco is planning on and what it's trying to sell its investors on. So I think that uh, there's a good degree of hopium, that, hopium. Uh, that Saudi Aramco is hoping the market is smoking on on this idea that, that we'll see
1: uh, higher prices. Is that what road. the
0: New York Giants had this weekend, hoping? Yeah, oh my What's, goodness. Is that hoping?
1: Yeah. Oh, Are are you going to rub that in a little bit?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm waiting for my heart. Let it linger.
1: Please continue. $1.5 trillion valuation potentially would yield a 5% dividend yield based on an initial $75 billion dividend. Stephen, does that get it done versus the all majors in Europe, in the United States, 5%?
6: Uh, five percent. I think I, I'm highly skeptical uh, on that on that on that percentage and on the assumptions going into that that percentage. Uh, we're we're dealing with a market that's uh, undergoing a tectonic shift yeah. with regard to future prospects of but growth.
0: Well, Steve, what's so important here? is you are the king of calculating the flows, the first, second derivative of all these barrels. Do we have any clue what Saudi Aramco has? Do we have any understanding of the underlying assets or their Shorkian derivatives?
6: Uh, yeah, no, uh, n- not that we can we can tell, uh, uh, you know, ascertain with any sort of significant confidence. Uh, it's almost uh, similar, akin to the economic numbers uh, that we get out of China. You just have to kind of go along and, and trust the process and and hope the oil is there. Uh, we certainly have have a, a mechanism uh, in the market of a balancing act in looking at the spread markets, but but certainly I think there is a degree of skepticism. But that said. Um, uh I, I think this is a demand size sized mar- market rather than supply side uh, we just had yeah. or the Iranians just announced a 50 billion barrel discovery uh, of, of new oil and when we consider that uh, this market demand decay uh, or demand peaking within the next 20 years uh, really you know the question is how long can demand last rather than how much supply is still on the ground
3: yeah demand peaking uh, in the next 20 years one of the potential details uh, in the 600-page share sale prospectus that was released on Saturday, giving more insight into Aramco's financials, which is unusual. It was a reversal in course for them, uh, having denied that in the past as being a possibility. Also, though, revealing a sharp drop in profit related to the attacks on its facilities in September. How big of a concern was that for
1: you?
6: Uh, well, certainly. I think that it is with, with, with any uh, of uh, that region, when you have a w- one, one source that is your primary source of income, whether it is for Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, so forth, uh, when you see that kind of vulnerability in the supply chain and uh, the prospects of the, uh, the younger generation uh, uh, of people around the world and their view on fossil fuels, it's not positive. Uh, and so my, my biggest concern going forward. And it's been my biggest concern, because I always thought it was kind of odd and worrisome that people were, were looking at the demise of oil as, as, a, as a weapon, as a, as a price weapon. And they were looking at it as some kind of, with some kind of glee. And my concern, and, and this will, I'm confident, will, it is bearing out and will only escalate in the years to come, is when these economies uh, that have been late to the game to diversify. And Saudi Arabia, with the Aramco IPO, let's face They they are 10 years too late uh, with this IPO, and they are not going to get the valuations and the long-term benefits uh, to diversify. So I think it's going to lead to an extreme level of of geopolitical unrest, uh, unlike we've we've ever seen in any of our lifetimes.
1: Stephen, away from the geopolitics just for a moment, I just want to focus on how the stock will behave, how it will perform, the traits of the company relative to its peers in the oil market. There was a great article over the weekend in Barron's about the royalty agreement, with the kingdom the royalty agreement with the kingdom is highly progressive and I just wonder to what degree that will make it more or less sensitive to the oil price just in terms of the equity performance
6: yeah, I think that that and and I I don't want to you know I mean I I appreciate you want to stay away from the geopolitics, but but certainly with, with that special arrangement uh, between uh, between the house and its relationship with, with with the state company, and now you want to open this up to outside investors, uh, it clearly is going to be a sticking point, and and quite frankly, I I don't have any sort of crystal ball and, and this is why I'm staying away uh, from from this issue uh, at, at this point. There are just too many uh, known unknowns uh, I, and I, I, this is getting a lot of hype because it, it is a monumental decision given, given the secrecy of, of of the Saudi government but when we look at western oil companies, western oil companies, the likes of BP and Shell they don't even call themselves oil companies anymore. They, they are natural gas, they are power, they are energy companies and I think Saudi is using this as a potential uh, way to, to rebrand themselves as well. But when you throw in uh, that, that special relationship with, with the house and, 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 and what, what they're going to get, I think there's going to be a, a lot of, well, we already you know known unknowns as to the impact of, their, of MBS's desire to diversify the kingdom away from its mainstay of oil
4: output.
3: Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really remarkable that you're saying that they're 10 years too late with this IPO. I do want to just go back to the point uh, made in that prospectus that global oil demand may peak within the next 20 years. They were citing a forecast from industry consultant IHS Market. I'm wondering, uh, when do you think that we will see peak oil demand?
6: I think it's Lisa. I think it's going to be sooner rather than later. Uh, I think long-term forecasting was invented to make astrology look respectable so what I, well, I, I believe my eyeballs and, and my eyeballs are telling me every time that I see a Tesla or a Prius or a BMW now doubling the amount of EVs it's going to make to uh, going to deliver to the market and the decisions by Volvo and so forth uh, that is oil demand that is lost. it is never coming back I myself I'm an oil guy, I own an electric hybrid suv my children i don't envision ever owning a gasoline only car so uh, with regard Uh, to uh, demand decay it happens sooner rather than later so if we're going to use 2035 uh, as a potential jumping off point when we peak i think it happens well before that
0: Stephen shark thank you so much the shark really appreciate it we protect the copyright of all our guests and particularly mr shark This is a joy to have on right now, Lachman Ajathan, who is with the Economic Cycle Research Institute. This is a venerable approach to thinking about our economy back into the thirties in a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Moore, which centers around ECRI economic cycles and that, and also the structural changes of the American economy. Lachman, I I want to start with an an open conversation as you join us from London today. You and I are at Claridge's. We're having our usual afternoon tea, and (laughs) we're we're having a tea. And someone from the United Kingdom turns to you and says, "Why is the U.S. so dominant in technology? What has technology done to your cycle research that many, including Jeffrey Moore, didn't have to worry about?"
7: Well, it's um, you know these are disruptors, uh, the various innovations. Uh, And so it's certainly changing the contours of the cycle, the amplitudes of the cycle um, here and there. But um, as long as we, and, and by the way, when we do cycle research, we're not talking about the last decade or the last couple of decades. We're talking about the last couple of centuries. Yeah. During which there's been a lot of technological change. Right. You know. Um, The invention of the bow
0: tie.
7: You know, (laughs) know, the invention of the bow tie, all of these things. And so what you find is that as you have large new innovations, disruptive innovations, um, they can change the contours of the cycle. They can um, eventually lead to hopefully some productivity growth, some boost in productivity growth. Um, But as long as you are in a free market-oriented economy, you also are going to be contending with the business cycle itself. And that we've seen that time and time again. We've tried to find the, the circumstances under which um, the free market cycle is not expressed. And it's fairly limited. I mean, uh, and certainly nothing that we're dealing with at the moment.
4: So I know your research called out that the current uh, global industrial slowdown that we're experiencing right now actually began before the trade war began in early 2018. Does that also sh- suggest that maybe it can start turning before we get any kind of movement on the trade deal?
7: Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, so I think when, when turning points happen, uh... and and they usually catch people off guard um, the the natural instinct is to look around and 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 look for what's salient and maybe connect the dots and say you know this made that happen and and certainly the trade war the the the, the real onset of the the hard trade war um, developments uh... seemed to coincide with global industrial slowdown that we've been uh, experiencing but actually as you say the the industrial slowdown began uh, quite a bit earlier and now everybody is you know hanging on bated breath what's the next development in the in the trade war to you know tomorrow the president's going to be speaking in new york is he going to give anything away in terms of what the next development is everybody's waiting to hear that but meantime the cycle itself is is moving along. And our work is showing that the forward-looking data, the leading indicators of global industrial growth, not actual global industrial growth, but the leading indicators have, have um, started to move up. And so we see, are uh, much more oriented. We're yeah. much more ready to see uh, an upturn in, it, in global industrial growth, keep, with or without the trade war ending.
0: Keep them for another three blocks. Crisis over. Well, okay, <laughs>
4: <Exactly. laughs> I mean, if, if the industrial cycle globally is going to see a stabilization, maybe beginnings of a, a turn up, we have to have China driving that, don't we? What's going on in China?
7: Yeah, it's interesting what's what here. So the U.S., by the way, the manufacturing cycle is still decelerating. Um, Europe, I think is where everything has actually started uh, in terms of the the global industrial upturn. They seem in v- many ways even just becoming less bad to have kind of kicked this off and you're right um, in china um, our leading indicators of global in- uh, excuse me of Chinese industrial production growth um, have begun to improve. I know that the PMIs, the official pmI or the uh, shasin PMI uh, are giving conflicting signals at the moment, uh, but our leading indicator no. of, of Chinese industrial growth is moving to the upside. They are participating. I think other uh, kind of ex- Asia ex Japan. Economies are already starting to participate as well
0: last one very quickly here And I want to come back and continue on this buried in your report is a trench in four or five paragraphs Where you are adamant manufacturing is not flat on its back. What's the vector on us? Manufacturing right now
7: Uh, Well, we we are at the end of the line. I'm afraid in terms of uh, the global manufacturing cycles Uh, we went in uh, to the downturn uh, later than the rest of the world, and uh, we do not have any clear signs of an upturn there yet and, and in U.S. manufacturing. And we are seeing some bottoming in our, in our it would, hopefully, we don't know that it's bottoming, but perhaps bottoming in the yeah. U.S. manufacturing indicators. The problem, the fly in the ointment in the United States is the um, em, employment cycle, the job cycle. That is still cycling down, and I think it's still happening in manufacturing. It gets a little difficult to read with the GM yeah. strike, um, but it's, it's there, and that's worrisome.
0: This has been a wonderful, Lachman. Thank you so much. Lachman, Hachithun, with us, with the Economic Cycle Research Institute uh, from London uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.